0: Matthew chapter 1, New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, very beginning of your New Testament record. Gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get right into the Word of God today. Lord, I want to praise your name, God. Bless your name, Lord, that you have preserved your Word. Lord Jesus, you said, heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will by no means pass away. God, your word is firmly fixed forever in the heavens. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you, God, that you have given us, Lord, your grace to stand before you today, Lord, with bold, confident access because of Jesus. Lord, thank you, God, for your sovereignty in history, God, your mercy in our lives, God, your power, the fact that, God, you control all things. You declare the end from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you've given this word to your church, to your people, Lord, to bless us and to glorify your name with this proclamation to the world, that Jesus is King. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the risen Savior, seated, putting all his enemies under his feet. God bless today, Lord, me, as I minister to your people, teach them, God, by your spirit, I pray that I decrease, God, and you increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're doing the gospel according to Matthew. We're calling it the kingdom of God series because Matthew has the emphasis as a Jew on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that the Messiah has in fact come into the world. History now is changed. The course of history is now going exactly where God said it was going to go. Matthew chapter 2. Here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to read the text to you guys in full, and then we're going to unpack a few things about it, and then read it again so you can get the full picture. So here we go. Matthew chapter 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it arose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went that and lived in a city called Nazareth. That, what was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled: he shall be called a Nazarene. And thus far, that's the reading of God's word. This is amazing. I have to tell you that when you first open Matthew as a Gentile, and if you wanna know what a Gentile is, this non-Jewish by heritage, by nationality, by birth. When you typically read Matthew as someone who's maybe not raised in the faith, you're not raised in church, you come to Matthew and you sort of, you, you feel kind of in, in, in a fog. It's like walking into a movie halfway through the film. There's a lot of things going on on the screen, parts are being played, characters are having certain interactions and you can't really quite put your finger on what's going on. So you have to sort of do a job of catch up, right? It's, um, I think, a good example of storytelling and coming into a story with the climax sort of already happening will kind of confuse you, and you have to sort of put together the pieces on your own, would be an example of a movie like, say, Pulp Fiction. Now, I am not advocating for you to go out and pick up a copy of Pulp Fiction today, but here's a good example of a story that starts with a climax, and how we can really misunderstand what's being said or not have all the pieces together if we start with the climax, see it all coming together without the backstory. Pulp Fiction opens up with Pumpkin and Honey Bunny sitting in a cafe at mid-conversation. It really is, in the end of the film, the climax of the film, the big scene. And Honey Bunny and Pumpkin are in the cafe in the midst of a conversation and it's, they're criminals, and they're gonna rob the place. And so the story kicks off at the climax. And so you open up in the story, and you're like, what's going on? I don't, really, I, don't really, I don't really understand it. Now, I remember when I was 16 years old, I came home, and Pulp Fiction was on. I remember I actually caught the climax scene at the end of the film. I walked in, I saw the film at the very end of it, and I thought, well, this was crazy. What's this film? And I didn't really understand what was going on because it was the climax. I didn't understand the parts, pieces, characters, why they were in the cafe, what this whole situation was about, but it was definitely compelling. It got your heart racing. It was an interesting climax. Now I stepped in at the end of the film and then when I rewound the VHS, there's a thing and it, kids, little spinny things and you had to rewind it or you got fined a dollar at Blockbuster. <laughs> Remember Blockbuster? Ha <laughs> okay. ha! Um, so to my dismay, when I get home and I put the tape in and I rewind the tape, what do I find at the beginning again? The climax scene, the the movie opens up with the climax scene and ends with the climax scene. And so you're just as confused starting at the very beginning. So what do you have to do to actually understand the story when you start at the climax? You got to go backwards. And in the film... It opens up with a climax and then the film begins to spread out and get you to understand what was going on. You see all the characters and their roles. You begin to see the conflicts. You begin to see the movement forward. You begin to see the tragedies occur. You begin to see where this movie actually goes and then you get to the climax and you go, oh, now I see. Now I see how all those lives really intersected. Now I see how the story actually comes together. Now I get it, you can't just look at a climax of something and understand really what's going on and the beauty behind the whole story. Oftentimes Gentiles, non-Jewish raised Christians, open their Bibles to Matthew and they just take it for granted. We we take it for granted. We open Matthew up and we begin to see this story of a genealogy and what's our first response? You open up Matthew, you're a new believer, you trusted in Jesus as savior, as Lord, he's king, you've turned from sin to trust him experience a new heart, eternal life, and you open Matthew, and you begin to see the book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob, and you go, okay, do I really have to read this? This is really a really necessary part of the story. And you don't really begin to understand the beauty behind Matthew explaining to us that God has kept his promises. He's the covenant-keeping God. He will never be moved. History is in his hands. He's the master storyteller. It's really his story. And Matthew opens up with the announcement, Yeshua the Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah, has come and fulfilled everything that was promised. He's got the right pedigree. He's from the right stock. He has the right to the throne. Here's his story. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, and he moves down the line and shows that Jesus, in fact, is king of kings, Lord of lords, as promised. You see, when you understand Matthew's backstory, you begin to understand what's happening in Matthew chapter 2, and it's majestic. You see, Christians, we brag on, and it's a good thing. Do this. We boast. We put our chests up. We put our chins up and our heads up about the fact that you can put together Jesus' Entire life, death, ministry, resurrection, everything about Jesus that you would need to know to trust in him as Savior and as Lord is in the Old Testament record hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus comes into his earthly ministry. Now we brag about that, amen? That's, that what, that's what sets our faith out to the world. We're like, hey, you want to know who Jesus is? Don't start in a New Testament. Start in your Old Testament. We, we kind of, that, that sort of gives us the flavor of what's so majestic about our faith is it, it demonstrates a sovereign God over history. He has told you every detail about Jesus long before Jesus was enfleshed in his mother's womb as a baby. Before God became man, the whole story was laid out In vivid high definition, vivid detail, it's all there. And in Matthew, as Gentiles, we come to the text, and we see Matthew pulling text. He says, this was to fulfill what the prophet said here. This was to fulfill what the prophet said here. This was to fulfill what the prophet said Nazarene. And what we do, honest, be honest, we don't always go back to pick up the story, do we? We take it for granted. Matthew is just telling us the straight scoop. But we don't understand that Matthew has a much bigger thing in mind. Not only does he show you the genealogy of the Messiah, that it lands on Jesus and he has the right to the throne. Not only does he show you the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, that a virgin conceives and it's God with us. Not only does he show you the sovereign hand there, but then he shows you something different. It's not just particular prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. But it's patterned prophecy. Now, I just did something on purpose. I read to you Matthew chapter 2, not just to read the text to you ahead of time, but I just read to you essentially what is equivalent to a climax of a story. Without reading to you the backstory, I want to tell you what you would have been under the hearing of as a Jewish little boy and girl. Jewish boys and girls raised in synagogue. Imagine this. We've got, I mean, this, this is awesome. It's, it's goat, it's goat skin. It's goat skin. Yeah. It's not just premium leather. It's goat, it's goat skin. Now, I don't know why that's special, but apparently it is because they charge extra for that. It's, this is, this is bound in Holland. Isn't that weird? Um, It's bound in Holland. It won't come apart. Lifetime guarantee. All 66 books and letters, over 1,000 years of composition, right here in front of me. Right at my fingertips. And some of you guys have it on your smartphones and electronic devices. I have a software that has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commentaries and every translation you can want. It's got kind of like Swahili translation of the New Testament. German, Dutch. It's amazing. Latin. I have all the text right in front of me. It's a glorious thing. And Jewish boys and girls would be in synagogue. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have your iPads, iPods, stuff with the Bible. You can just push a button and it's right there in front of you. My my software has a thing where you put your finger on a word and it opens it up and gives you like a little wheel. And you can see like what's the origin of the word, the etymology, the historical usage. Where's it used in the Bible? How many times? It's like crazy. We can cheat a lot in Bible exposition now much easier job but little jewish boys and girls learn by story they went to synagogue they would be under the hearing of the word of god at synagogue you wanted to go to the synagogue to hear the word of god you didn't necessarily have scrolls rolled up in a bookshelf at your home You couldn't just say, hey dad, pull down down Exodus for me. Oh, let me go grab my copy of Exodus. If you wanted to hear the word of God, you went to synagogue. You were with God's people. They would sit around a fire and they would just tell their kids the story of the Exodus, of Moses, the lawgiver, of God's grace coming across the Red Sea into the promised land. You would hear about all the tragedies. They would make you recite the word of God. And the Psalms were the very hymnal of God's people. They sang the psalms. We, we read the psalms as encouragement, word of God. This is the word of my God, the psalms. They sang it. It was their hymnal. For them, Psalm 10 was to our amazing grace. If you would have started reading a psalm, they could have finished it for you. Every faithful Jew would have woken up and said, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. The Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. And for a Jewish boy and girl, they learn the story of Israel, of God's faithfulness, of Father Abraham, who had a son, that in this son, God was going to bless the whole world, Isaac. They learn about the tragedies. They learn about King David, a man after God's own heart, who really falls into sin. But God redeems his life. He's engaged in murder and adultery, and God brings redemption in that king's life. They learn about a Messiah to come. They heard the story. It was part of the fabric of their being. They knew the story. And listen, we can't appreciate Matthew chapter 2 as the climax of the story until we hear the backstory. So I'm going to give you today a couple pieces of the story that you need to understand to really get the characters, the story, the fabric, the tapestry of what's happening in Matthew 2. And sort of like... Seeing the climax and then getting the pictures later and then coming back to the climax. That's what we're going to do today. So first thing in the story Jews would have known about is the story of Adam, our first father. Adam and Eve, God creates. He is God. He is the first and the what? Last. Besides him, there is no God. He says in Isaiah 44, 8, is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other God. I know not one. I gave it to you a moment ago, the Shema, and I want you to say it with me. We're going to know this is an Apology at church. The Shema, ready? Shema, Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohenu, Yahweh, Echad. 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 Only one God. They knew that. And this one and only true and living God that is dependent upon no one or no thing, all powerful, mighty, limitless in all of his attributes, the one who is not just holy, but he is. Holy, holy, holy. That God created, He spoke light into darkness. The sun was being worshiped, the moon being worshiped, the stars being worshiped by the pagans. And the story of Genesis opens up that God said, Let there be light. That God said, let this be hung there in the sky. That God said, "Let there be creatures crawling across the face of the earth." Face of the earth. That God said, "Let the ocean teem with life." That God said, ultimately, "Let us make man in our image." God creates man in His image. He makes a covenant with him. Listen, we get tripped up at times. We're like, "What kind of fruit was it? it was a pomegranate. it was a pomegranate? Was it pomegranate? Think it was an apple." Who cares? It could have been a stick God said, don't pick up. It didn't make a difference. We get tripped up on the fact that it's a tree, it's a tree, it's a tree, it was a covenant. It's the same thing you do today when you make a covenant with somebody for an apartment building or for a car. You make a covenant that comes with blessings and sanctions. Do this and you get this. You do this and you're gonna get this. And God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. He said this, you can have all this, you can do this don't do this. It's arbitrary. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. Don't pick that up. Don't go over there. Don't look that way. God says, I'm God. You're the creature. Creator, creature relationship. You may do this. You may not do that. And Adam and Eve were told, the day you do, you will what? Die. And death entered the human race the day Adam and Eve took of that fruit, and broke covenant with God, and then God came in immediately with the promise of what? Messiah. The first person that God talks to in reference to the fall is not Adam and Eve, and that should trip us out. He's a holy God. We're the violators. And God actually talks to whom? Satan. And he says in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. And he says that this woman's seed is gonna come and crush the head of Satan, but he'll be wounded or bruised on his heel. You get a picture right there of virgin birth and a Messiah who's coming that's gonna deliver the death blow to the head of Satan, but be wounded in that action. Simultaneous process, a temporary wound and a death blow to the work of Satan. That's the picture. And then God then gives them the picture of innocent for guilty sacrifice. Here's the animals. The first death occurs. It was bloody. It was ugly. It was innocent for guilty. And then God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness in the skins of the animal. Their shame covered. In a garden, death occurs. And they're cast out of God's presence. Listen, every Jewish boy and Jewish girl knew the story. They knew that this death represented our exile from God's presence. They knew that this death represented our separation from our creator. That now things were broken. But listen, they also knew that God had provided something new on the way. He immediately started laying the ground. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. This is getting taken care of. Redemption is coming. My love will cover you. They saw it. They saw it. And then the story moves on. Abraham. He's got a pagan mommy and daddy. Listen, Abraham was not in Jewish Iwanus. all right? You need to know that. He wasn't. Abraham came from pagans. God called him to himself, and in Genesis 15, God made a promise, and I want you to see it. You need to have a place to go. Go to Genesis 15. Let's see how many of you guys were actually in Iwanus and get there first. I won. Electronic Bibles do not count in this exercise, by the way. Genesis 15, Abraham, verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, and here it is, brothers and sisters, you need to know that every Jew waited for this moment. Listen. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. As righteousness. Listen, the Jews knew that one day God was going to give the blessings of Abraham, that there would be a descendants of Abraham of the same faith of Abraham that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The Jews knew that someday, someday, multitudes of people are going to fill this earth. So many that you, you want to know how many? If, if you could put it in a picture, it'd be like, you look up to the stars, and there's so many stars. You, you, get, you, you, you can't count. You start, and then you get mixed up. And then you start, and you move around. You, you forget, because there's so many that you just you give up. You give up eventually saying, I'm done. I can't, I can't do it. It's a task that's too far, too beyond my ability. And so the Jews knew that Abraham was going to have, ultimately, descendants that filled the whole earth that would multiply endlessly. Next point. the story. And you can stay right here in your Old Testament, move to Exodus. That's the next book after Genesis. Now I'm going to have you take a note here, and you can read the story later on your own. If you read the story of Moses in the Exodus, it's Exodus chapters 1 through 14. Let me give you the important piece you need to know that the Jews would have heard. Listen closely, because you will understand Matthew's story when you understand this picture yourself as a jewish boy as a jewish girl in synagogue hearing this story in anticipation of one day when god will raise up a prophet like moses but better exodus chapter 1 verse 8 now there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and he said to his people behold the people of israel are too many and too mighty for us come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Now as you move down, verse 15, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to the Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son, that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so the story flows on. Pharaoh has these children, these baby boys killed, throw them into the Nile, but one baby is spared. One baby, Moshe, Moses. Moses is put into a little basket and God wields the river, and controls where it lands right into the hands of one of the ladies in the higher-ups. She's able to keep Moses, and Moses is raised sort of in a combined cultural thing. He's Jewish, and he's also being raised in Egypt. He's got both going on. And then we know the story. He kills an Egyptian, and he flees to Midian. And in Midian, God comes to Moses, Moses... You tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, what's your name, God? Who do I say sent me? And God says, I am. And so then Moses now goes to Pharaoh, kind of freaking out. Let my people go, God says. And Pharaoh's like, are you tripping? That's my paraphrase. It's not, that's just so you understand. Pharaoh's like, I don't don't think so. And so God sends these plagues. How many plagues, people? Ten plagues. Nine plagues Plagues are pretty trippy. Now, I have to confess something. When I first became a believer and I read the plagues, when I first became a believer and read the plagues, I thought, and I'm going to be honest here, I thought it was pretty cold-blooded. I did. Frogs, locusts, bloody water. It's hardcore. Like, it could have been anything else, but God sending fleas, like you know, lice and... Cattles are dying, bloody water, it's nasty, right? And I thought to myself, well, that's pretty cold bloody. And then you read the story and the history and understand that the Egyptians at the time were worshiping the gods of those powers. So when God sent into Egypt the bloody water, the cattle dying, all the frogs, the locusts, he actually sent into Egypt the things that the Egyptians were essentially worshiping. So when the locusts come in, the Egyptians are supposed to be able to pray to the locust God, to get the locusts out. And what happens? More locusts. What does it tell the Egyptians? That he is God. And they are worshiping false idols. It was an invitation to repent. To come to God, the true and living God. So all these things come in locusts frogs darkness upon the earth all these things and the final plague is what God says I'm going to take the firstborn now you need to hear this brothers and sisters it is absolutely amazing God says I'll take the firstborn he tells the Jews you take a lamb with no spot no blemish you take a lamb with no spot no blemish and you do not break its bones now notice something this is really critical Notice that God says that they must take this lamb with no spot, no blemish. Don't break its bones. Put the blood of that lamb over your doorposts and lintels. And this would stop the judgment of God from coming to their house. So, who was in this? The Egyptians and the Jews. The only thing that protected the Jews was if they had the blood of this spotless lamb with the bones not broken over their doorposts, then God's judgment would pass over that house on account of the blood of the lamb. They would be freed from their bondage and slavery to Egypt to cross through the Red Sea into the Promised Land. They they heard the story, they knew it, but they didn't know where it was going. It was a pattern. They they knew the story. Our people were brought out of Egypt. Israel is God's son. That's what Israel was called. The people of Israel, God's special son. And they were taken out of Egypt across the Red Sea, an impossible gulf. Between them and the promised land, God just spreads it. Bang! And then when they make it through, their enemies are coming after them. And God says, swallows up the enemies of the people as they enter the promised land. The Jews knew the story. Now, I have to go here because I just cannot help myself. It is just too delicious. Jesus, you will see in the Gospels, you'll see, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was crucified when? Passover. That's when he died you'll notice that in the Exodus story, God tells the Jewish people, lamb with no spot, no blemish. It almost has an aside, just says, and don't break its bones. Now the Jews don't know why. He's, he's God. He says, lamb, no spot, no blemish. Don't break its bones. They're like, okay. I get to eat it, so good, <laughs> okay. And they take the blood of the lamb over the door. Don't break its bones. And Jesus, in the future, all the people are in bondage to sin, On Passover, the Lamb of God, with no spot or blemish, is crucified. And what did they not do to his legs they did to the criminals? They did not break his bones. And when Jesus' blood covers your house, the wrath of God passes over your house. You are freed from your bondage to sin to cross over that impossible gulf, between you and the promised land to enter into that relationship with God. That's awesome. But the Jews knew the story of Moses, the lawgiver, on a mountain with tablets of stone, delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt in their bondage. They also knew the story of the Exodus. They came out of Egypt, they knew this story, but they also knew that they blew it <laughs> a bunch, a lot. Do you ever notice that Old Testament? It's just like like up and down. And you're always like, you're like screaming at the Bible. Like, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? He just took you like seriously, how how much time went by? They would pass through this Red Sea and their enemies booyah behind them. They're like, yay! Yay! Oh, look at God. And they just go (laughs) off. Like a spiritual case of ADD. It's just like. Here's a God there. Oh, there's another God. I'm going to worship that thing over there. Delivers the tablets. It's taking a little too long. Moses, just a little too long. And they're like, let's have a rave at the bottom of the... In a, and they start worshiping the golden calf. It happens constantly. That was their story. So they knew that while they were there, going to the promised land, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And God was teaching them, look, don't depend on just bread alone. But by every word that proceeds from my mouth. And they fail and they fail and they fail. They knew the story of Israel, of God's son, was his faithfulness, but they knew that the Israelites failed. They failed. They were to be the light of the world, and they failed. Next as they knew a king was coming. God told them in 1 Samuel 8, it's sinful for you to want a king over you, but I'm going to send a king. You'll get one. He promised them they were going to get the ultimate king. God was coming as king. They knew it. I want you to see this. Go to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Psalm chapter 2. I want you to have your finger on it. I want you to know this text because it is amazing. Psalm chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and hold, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten, of you, begotten you. Listen to what God says. This is the Father speaking to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I love this. This is God's calling out the kings of the earth. Now therefore O kings be wise be warned O rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun obey the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him listen they knew a king was coming who would get the nations all the nations under his authority and his rule and this was the Jewish king that would become the king of The world, He'd be the king of Africa. He'd be the king of Europe, the king of all of Russia, the king of the United States of America, the king of Papua New Guinea, baby. One king over the whole world. This king would actually have the nations. They knew he was coming. They knew he was coming. And they know God keeps his promises, declares the end from the beginning. And they said, he's coming. And then there's a story of the exile in Jeremiah 31. The Jews in sin, once again, are promised by God. Listen, listen. They are promised by God, you're going to go into exile 70 years. But you'll get out. And God even names the man who will cause their release before he's even born. Cyrus is his name. And the Jews were taken away out of their lands. And there was weeping The people of God now going now out of their lands into bondage, to captivity once again. But God says, listen, 70 years you'll be there, but you'll come home. You're going to come home. And there's going to be in Daniel 9 an ultimate day of return from exile, an ultimate day of redemption that's deeper than simply a land, a temple, a people. It's much bigger. They knew it was coming. And the last thing I'm going to do is read to you two parts about the exile and something about the branch that was coming. This comes from a commentary on this point. I want, to, I want you to hear it, how this author puts this. I think it's phenomenal on the exile. Listen, when Herod does here, usually called the slaughter of the innocents, is horrific. This is when Herod kills the boys in Bethlehem. He says, I don't want to downplay the evil of that event, but having said that, our focus... It's more on verses 17 and 18, the prophecy, than on verse 16, the tragedy. This is from Matthew 2. In the next chapter, we'll return to this text. Okay, so here we go. This prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. When Jeremiah speaks of Rachel, he is referring to the matriarch, the wife of Jacob, the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. Rachel died, if you recall, giving birth to Benjamin. Because of this, she took on a symbolic role for God's people. She was known as the Mater Dolor, Dolorosa, sorrowful mother of the Old Testament, as well as the mother of Israel for all time, as the rabbis called her. At one point, the prophet Jeremiah, like many Judean prisoners, was held prisoner in Ramah, Jeremiah 40, verse 1. A town about five miles north of Jerusalem, this was the town where Rachel was likely buried. It was also through which God's people were marched, having been captured by the Babylonian army in the early 6th century B.C. as they traveled north from Jerusalem. Concerning this event, Jeremiah envisioned in chapter 31 the mother of Israel, as if alive in her tomb, weeping for her children as they walked off to captivity right before her eyes. So if you get the picture, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah poetically puts together that Rachel is weeping. As the people of God are marched again into exile, into captivity, she's weeping. As she watches this take place, the children of God being brought out into captivity. So you say, okay, but what does Jeremiah 31 have to do with Jesus? Why quote from that chapter and relate it to the slaughter of these children? Here is the relationship between the two. In Jeremiah 31, Rachel's tears, the tears of the exile, have reached their climax in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. In other words, with Jesus, the trail of tears is finally coming to an end. That is the message of the whole chapter of Jeremiah 31. Unlike most of the book of Jeremiah, this chapter is not one of sorrow but hope. The verse right after what Matthew quotes starts, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Now, why should God's people refrain from crying? Because God's people finally shall come back from the land of the enemy, Jeremiah 31, 16. And they shall serve the Lord their God new and the ultimate King David, 30, verse 9. The exile is over. The reign of the new king under a new covenant is at hand. Listen to this. Listen closely. Listen closely. Some of you guys are like, this is new language. I don't get it. Don't be afraid of this stuff. You need to know it. It makes Matthew 2 absolutely astonishing. And go to Jeremiah 31 so you can have a picture in your mind of what the text is saying. You need to see this. Jeremiah 31. Couple points. I want you to have your pens. If you feel comfortable writing in your Bibles and making notes, I want you to write down a couple things. Jeremiah 31, 15. Go ahead and highlight that. That's what, Jer- that's what Matthew's quoting from that's about the exile what is Matthew doing what in the world is Matthew doing flippantly grabbing a verse in Jeremiah 31 and pulling it over into Jesus well if you understand the story they knew a greater return from exile was coming in the Messiah you want to see proof Jeremiah 31 15 is what Matthew quotes from but look at what 16 says Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Now I want you to do something, guys. Same text. Move down to verse 31. What is in the text about the return from the exile? The deliverance, the wiping of tears. What's in Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them from, my land, from by the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will remember their iniquity and I will, remember their I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see Jeremiah, on purpose, is bringing you in your mind as a Jew. He's bringing you back to Jeremiah 31. Remember, Hey guys, remember the weeping? Remember the exile? Remember the captivity? Remember the fact that God said that this would be solved? God says he would wipe away your tears? No more exile, no more death. Remember God promised a new covenant where his law would be in your heart and he would forgive you of all your sins? And he quotes the text to bring your mind there. And he says, this is Jesus. He wipes away your tears. He is the end of our exile. Jesus is the one who brings this new covenant where God forgives you of all your sin. He's arrived. He's come. Next point I want you to know is there was a promised branch. And this one is amazing. I want you to go real quickly to your Bibles. I want you to see it. Go to Matthew 1. Sorry, Matthew 2. Do you notice something? Do you notice that Matthew, when he quotes in chapter 1 and 2, he does something. Listen closely as you get to Matthew 2. Do you notice something? He says this. This was to fulfill what the prophet had spoken. Prophet is what? Singular or plural? Singular. This was to fill what the prophet said, and he quotes the verse prophet. And then look at this. In Matthew chapter 2... The last verse, 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Are you aware of this? There is no verse in the entire Old Testament that says he should be called a Nazarene. people have said as they come to this text and they don't know their bibles and what matthew is doing ha, 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 ha. gotcha gotcha matthew you just quoted a verse that doesn't exist in the old testament the only problem is they don't understand the actual depth and complexity going on here that is absolutely jaw-dropping notice that matthew says and he should be called a nazarene it was to fulfill with what the prophets plural had spoken. Matthew is bringing together a unique idea from all the prophets that they were supposed to be aware of. He shall be called a Nazarene. And I want to read you something about the translation of Nazarene. Listen closely. When Matthew says of Jesus in verse 23, he would be called a Nazarene. He is bringing these ideas together. What ideas? And the ideas is the Messianic ideas Ready? Of an ultimate Davidic king, often called the son of David, and also a, a seemingly contrary idea, at least unfathomable to the Pharisees of Jesus' day, that the Gentiles would be part of God's people and that there would be a branch. A, ready? Listen closely. Here's the word for branch in Hebrew. Neser. The word for branch in Hebrew is Neser from Isaiah 11.1, 1, that there would be a branch a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a Nesser, a branch from his root shall bear fruit from David's royal line. The Messiah was predicted to be somebody that would be a branch from David's line. A, ready? Nesser. A Davidic king. a Nesser, a little branch. A little nothing just psh, Not a big tree, but a branch. Pops off. A Nesser. And they knew all the stories of he would be a man despised acquainted with grief he would be so disfigured beyond our ability to even understand him in Isaiah 52 he would be so disfigured he doesn't even resemble a man he would be a nesser And then all of a sudden the town of Nazareth was likely named after Isaiah 11:1 it was originally settled by a remnant of Israel who returned from the exile were from David's line, and who thus consciously gave their new settlement a messianic name. They called the town Nazareth. I imagine under the town name something like, Welcome to the city of the branch. So Matthew is saying that Jesus came from the city of David, Bethlehem, as well as from the people of David, Nazareth. Jesus is the branch. Jesus is the Son of God. The fact that he grew up in Nazareth as a Nazarene puts an exclamation point on this. The other interesting fact about Nazareth is it's a location in the region called Galilee. A region that had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. This is why Isaiah called it Galilee of the Nations. Due to the ethnic diversity, Galilee and Nazareth in particular was looked down upon. What Nathaniel says when he first learned Jesus came from what was called Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael was looking for the Jewish Messiah, who we assumed wouldn't come from the region of the world, that region of the world. Isn't it amazing that Jesus, his mom and and adoptive father, are in Nazareth, and God wields the nations, and he says to Caesar, "Uh, how about a census? Because my Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And so God wheels the Caesar, Caesar says, ah, uh, census, census, yeah. Joseph and Mary go to where? Bethlehem, where the Messiah was to be born. And then they go to Egypt, they're called out of Egypt, they go back to Nesereth. Isn't it amazing that the one who is the root and the branch was raised in the city, the city of the branch, This was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. He shall be a Nazarene. That is awesome. Now, there's much more that can be said, but I want to emphasize one point here, and we're done with the sermon. I'm going to read to you the climax again. Matthew 2. Can I point out this one point to you? doesn't it absolutely blow your mind that God not only wields the Caesars, not only wields the universe and rivers for a little baby named Moshe, Moses, he not only wields those things, but he wields the stars. And listen closely. Doesn't it blow your mind that the Messiah was to now gather not just Jews, but Gentiles, and the first people to show up To come to worship this king are magi, not Jews, pagan astrologers. The first people that come to worship the king of Israel are Gentiles. Unclean, uncircumcised, pagan astrologers. The people in Jerusalem are freaking out. Because here come these magi. They're going, uh, yeah, like we saw these stars. Where's the one, the king of the Jews? Now, Herod, wicked man that he was, is threatened by this. His authority is threatened. So he knows, he says, guys, where's the Messiah going to be born? He knew king meant Messiah. And they said, well, that's Micah 5.2. It says that he comes from Bethlehem. And here's what's crazy. Last point of the sermon. You've got to see it with your own eyes. Micah 5.2. two. Listen. He quotes Micah 5-2, but not the whole thing. Not the whole thing. Micah 5-2. Bethlehem. But then the identity is left out. Who is he? Who's the Messiah come from Bethlehem? Micah 5-2, Old Testament. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Who Who is God, King, Messiah, this Jesus is himself God. John words it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Micah 5.2 says, the one from Bethlehem's from eternity. But there's more, there's more, which makes Matthew's quotation of the Magi more majestic. Listen, verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Did you catch that? He shall be great where? Palestine, Jerusalem, Nazareth. He shall be great to the what? Ends of the earth. So when the quotation comes in of Micah 5.2, God's coming to Bethlehem. It's the one who's getting the ends of the earth who shows up to worship Jesus People from the east, from the ends of the earth, Gentile, non-Jewish, pagan astrologers that saw God wield the stars and they said, the king of the Jews is coming. God had the first people not to be Jews to come and bow before the king, but Gentiles. Matthew opens up his gospel, Gentiles worshiping Jesus, and at the end, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, make disciples of what, guys? All nations. Matthew is telling you the story of the Messiah. He's come, he's getting the nations. They're his now. And here's the Magi. Now listen closely. I'm going to pull together a point here that you need to hear. This is my so what. Are you ready? So what? How do you respond to Jesus, this King, this Messiah? How do you respond to Him right now? John Piper says there's two things you need to notice from the text here about the Magi and about Herod. The people in Jerusalem are freaked out. How come the people in Jerusalem heard the Messiah was born and they didn't go with them? What's wrong with you, people in Jerusalem? Come, Messiah is being born. Go check it out for me. They're all troubled and they're indifferent about the Messiah. They're indifferent. They really don't care. They don't go. Pagans were going to worship Jesus. They weren't going. And then Herod wasn't indifferent. He was hostile. His authority was threatened. He hated the idea of Jesus taking his place. He hated the idea of bowing before Jesus. But it was pagan, unworthy, astrologers that went to go bow before Jesus how do you respond to the Savior today how do you respond to the King is it with indifference is it with hostility or do you come and fall before the feet of this Messiah and this King now I told you I'd read you the climax first and then I'd tell you the backstory And now I want to read it one more time, and then we're going to worship God together. Matthew 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. and search diligently for the child and when you have found him bring me word that i too may come and worship him after listening to the king they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went out before them until it came to rest over the place where they saw where the child was when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, in that region, according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That was that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he was called a Nazarene. Listen, Israel was to inherit a king, and that king was to inherit the world. Matthew is recapitulating summarizing the life of israel in the life of jesus israel was god's son and they failed miserably they fell into sin they broke covenant and here comes jesus the perfect israelite the davidic king the root the branch the nesser the coming king the one who owns the right to the throne he comes in he goes through the life of israel escaping the slaughter coming out of Egypt, he is the branch, who has victory in the wilderness over Satan, who is on a mountain and delivers the true interpretation of the law, who dies in a garden and takes our death, who conquers death by rising from the dead, and he covers you in his righteous robes, if you have turned from sin to trust in him. He is king, amen? Let's worship him together. Father, I pray that you use this, God, for your glory. I pray, Lord, that you bless us, God, to love your word more, to love you more, to love you deeply to treasure this gift of your word that we have. God bless everyone in this room. Let us grow together in love for you and in love for each other. And God, I beg that you use us as a church to bring this gospel of the kingdom to the world. Please, God, use this church. Please, God, use us for your glory in a mighty way. There's more than 12 people here, God. You started with 12. Please change the world for your glory through what you do here in Jesus' name, amen.